From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The House and Senate have another week to figure out how to fund the government for the rest of the year. The House passed a continuing resolution Wednesday to run through next Friday. NextGov reports spending on a border wall and private medical care through the VA are the holdups to passing an omnibus spending bill. A nearly $12 billion IT consolidation contract is officially out for bid from the Defense Information Systems Agency. The Defense Enclave Services contract will combine IT services for the Defense Department's fourth estate agencies. Defense News reports one bidder will get the indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract. The Department of Veterans Affairs will get its first batch of coronavirus vaccines in the coming days if the Food and Drug Administration approves an emergency use authorization for the Pfizer shot. The head of the Veterans Health Administration, Richard Stone, says the agency will get 73,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine. GovExec reports Stone says the agency's ordered 128,000 doses of the Moderna vaccine, too. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, says services should prepare for flat budgets in coming years. The Center for Strategic and International Studies says thinking on the margins could help the Pentagon save money. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project at CSIS. Todd, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's this edge of the budget thinking mean to you, Todd? Yeah, well, you know, the idea is, uh, as espoused in one of the papers we published uh, on our website just this past week, uh, the idea is you should be thinking in incremental choices, right? Because in reality, that's what you're faced with in this policy environment. It's not, you know, a matter of do I completely eliminate a leg of the triad or not. Uh, more often it's, okay, do I need 400 ICBMs or would it be better to have 401 or 399? You need to be looking at the risk and the benefits on the margins of all of these decisions because really that's that's what we're able to control. You annually look at some of the bad ideas in defense. Is that one of your bad ideas this year that looking to take big chops, uh, big whacks of individual programs is a bad way to go about thinking about how to cut the defense budget? Yes, it is. So, you know, every year, I think we've we've talked about this on the show uh, in past years, uh, and this is our fourth year of doing it. Uh, we, uh, we have a, a series that we publish in December called Bad Ideas in National Security, uh, and it's where we basically invite people to write articles and take on these bad ideas that just keep coming back up in defense. Consider it an airing of grievances, if you will, in the spirit of Festivus. Uh, and so one of the bad ideas we published this year was uh, by a friend of mine, Justin Joffrion, uh, who's actually director of the Office of Labor uh, and Economic Analysis for the Air Force, a newly created office. Uh, and this was his uh, bad idea, failing to think on the margins of the defense budget. Uh, so I thought it was an excellent one. Uh, and that was one of the first articles that went up in our series this year. Is the trend, now that you've been doing this for a number of years, is the trend to look each December at bad ideas that haven't gone away, or are people finding new bad ideas on an ongoing basis that they want to talk about? Well, you know, in 2020, there's been no shortage of bad ideas. <laughs> I don't know if 2020 is unique, but go ahead. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, and and so you know, a lot of the bad ideas that uh, people are coming to uh, to us with, uh, they're things that have been around for a while. Uh, bad ways of thinking about old problems that just keep coming up. Uh, and so not a lot of them are specific or new things that have come up this year. Uh, they tend to be things that have been lingering for a long time. Do you get a sense that highlighting these as bad ideas over time has made an impact? Did people say, you know, you're right, that's really kind of a terrible idea. We shouldn't do that anymore, or we should at least do a lot less of it than we're doing? Yeah, well, part of the whole idea of this series is to have a little fun, poke a little fun at these issues, because, you know, normally what we do 11 months out of the year, we're looking at positive policy ideas, like good things that, that you know, the government should be doing. Uh, and by taking a different, you know, uh, perspective on it, looking at the bad ideas and calling out why they're bad, the hope is it'll draw people in because it's different and it'll be a learning moment. Uh, that we can help educate people on how to think about an issue, even if they don't agree that it's a bad idea. And we do start to see, uh, you know, some impacts in helping shape or change the thinking of policymakers uh, to better focus what they're trying to do and avoid some of the pitfalls uh, that might, you know, uh, seem like common sense. Uh, but really, you know, they're more complicated, uh, you know, once you start to unpack the issue and the consequences of certain decisions. So back to the budget issue that we started with, because you uh, you honed your your skills on defense budgeting, Todd, um, that strikes me once it's pointed out to me, it strikes me as logical that thinking, well, maybe we only need 345 ships instead of 355, and all of these individual places where we could go, well, how can we make do with what we have or with less than what we think we need, seems tremendously logical. How does that manifest itself in actual budgeting and in actual acquisition? Well, I'll tell you a good example of how we fall into this trap of not thinking on the margins uh, is, you know, policymakers will be looking at a program uh, and they'll say, well, you know, we've, we've spent billions of dollars working on this. Uh, we don't want to throw away all of that investment by canceling it now. Um, or another example will be uh, that, you know, hey, if we just build more of this item, the unit cost will come down. And that's true. Unit costs will come down. Uh, but in the first case, what we're doing is we're falling into the sunk cost fallacy, mm. right? Uh, the fact that you've spent a lot of money on it so far doesn't really factor. It shouldn't factor into your decision of is it worth spending the money that's you know left to finish it? Uh, you should always look at something and say, OK, how much money is required to finish this? And is the capability, the benefit that we get from it worth that extra money? Uh, that's required, right? It doesn't matter if you spent billions of dollars already because you can't get that back one way or the other. Yeah, and in terms of buying more items to bring down the unit cost, well, yeah, you know, the unit cost will go down if you buy more, but do you need those extra units? <laughs> Even if they are cheaper, are they adding value that's commensurate with their cost? That's the question we should be asking. So the potential critique on your idea is that I hear those ideas propagated more in Congress than I do out of the building. And this goes back to the classic debate that you and I have discussed ad nauseum over the years, Todd, which is the building can say it wants something and it doesn't get much choice if Congress says it gets something else. 
Yeah, and and that's where you know we hope to help bridge that divide, as CSIS, to bring folks together to help them, you know, on both sides, both in the executive branch and in Congress, help think about these issues, uh, you know, in a more logical, strategic manner, uh, and understand like, okay, what are our real choices, uh, and what are we trading between, right? And how should we value these things? How should we evaluate them? Uh, and Often, a lot of times, disagreements between DOD and Congress, it boils down to they're using different data and they're using different analysis. Uh, and if they could just come together and agree on some of the baseline facts, they might be able to communicate better about what they value, what they view as risk, uh, and what they're willing to spend. Todd Harrison, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Always good. Up next, improving customer experience in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the next administration can make customer experience a top priority. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a new cookbook out for improving customer experience across government. And it's not the only agency prioritizing CX. Partnership for Public Service and Accenture Federal Services have new recommendations for making customer experience a priority across the government and in the White House. Lauren DeYoung Shulman is Vice President of Research at the Partnership for Public Service, former Chief of Staff to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Lauren, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. And I note that uh, this work starts with the old ways won't work anymore. That's never stopped us in government from continuing to do things the old way, has it? Not once before in my long experience, but I think what's been great about the last several months uh, of, the, of the pandemic, if there's any shiny silver lining to any of this, is it's proven that we can, in government, can act much faster, much more responsibly to the American people's needs and adapt things that would normally take months and even years in the matter of weeks when an emergency calls for it. So I think that level of, experience, that level of customer experience that Americans are experiencing across the country, they're going to come to expect that no matter what's going on, whether it's in a crisis or in steady state, which is if there's any positive thing that comes out of the last several months, that's a good thing that I hope that government can continue to take advantage of. Your team notes that that positive uh, upturn here. You write, we found the government made progress since last year in addressing feedback and improving the customer experience. You use the word yet instead of but, but it's the same function, isn't it? What's the but here, Lauren? Uh, the but is that for all that there's been a lot of incredible innovation over the last several months. There's great examples at the VA, as you mentioned, uh, in serving veterans. There's great examples in the Department of Agriculture, the IRS, and many others. There's still a lot more to be done in having agencies capable of understanding the, uh, the, uh, the adapting needs of their customers, whether it be in the middle of a pandemic, whether it be a, a caretaker trying to uh, uh, get medical support services for a veteran, whether it be a farmer trying to access a loan. These are not steady state things that uh, agencies can just make a lot of assumptions about in terms of how their customers are wanting to be served, how they're best getting information, and how they're wanting to interact with the federal government. This is really kind of the pointy end of the spear, as DOD might say, where government is live and real in the lives of the American people in a way that it is not when you're watching a Rose Garden ceremony or a congressional hearing. This is how Americans are experiencing government on a day-to-day -day basis. And while some agencies have made real improvements that we discussed in understanding 
um, and adapting quickly and elevating those needs up to leaders who can make a difference in changing services. Others still need to do a lot in order to adapt that functionality. One of the recommendations that you're making is, is this, assigning a senior executive to lead on customer experience. Does that take the form of something like a chief customer experience officer, as some agencies have done, or is it, is it uh, an additional duty that goes to someone who is already kind of on the edges of customer experience type functions? What does that structure look like to be most successful in your view? So I think what's important to understand is that every agency is going to handle customer experience differently. However, having someone at the senior leadership level who considers customer experience to be their primary job, whether they're called a customer experience officer or given another title, will do a lot to help adapt the culture of agencies and become more responsive to their own priorities. I think that, um, to mention the VA again, they have, uh, under successive leaders, they've had secretaries and others who have taken this mission very seriously themselves personally and made sure that customer needs are translated to them on a regular basis. Other agencies have put in place senior executives who, as you say, that's in their job title, that's what they're getting paid for, that's what their performance objectives are. I think that's what it comes back to, though, is having leaders who feel a sense of accountability that impacting the lives of their customers in a positive way is something that they need to be measured for, not just in outputs, but in outcomes. They're understanding how their actions and their programs are having impact, not just in the dollars they're spending or in the calls that they're making, but in how they're actually shaping these outcomes for the American people and those who visit and engage with the United States. So it sounds like the main idea then is not so much a title as it is that there is a name and a known person who owns the customer experience goal of a particular agency. That's been particularly effective in the cross-agency priority goals and the president's management agenda. And you and your colleagues point out customer experience should remain a centerpiece of the PMA using the following government-wide strategies to improve, improve services. There are three of those. What's the one that you think maybe agencies could adapt most easily, Lauren? So in terms of the PMA, just to kind of step back from your question for a moment there, Francis, the, the reason it's important to continue having customer experience in the PMA is this how the president makes clear this is where I expect you to change government, whether it be uh, in adapting services, adapting functionality internally, how we collect and provide information. I think some of the, one of the top recommendations that I would say is most important is uh, creating a centralized team to manage customer experience efforts with a government-wide perspective. So the, the, you may have really great experience with the VA or US Department of Agriculture. You may have terrible experience with the IRS. This impacts how people trust the government. It impacts how they want to engage with it, whether or not they think they're going to get fair and responsive service. Ha being able to share lessons across government they've learned and how to adapt, uh, interact with people on social media, how to use artificial intelligence and in customer experience, how to use informational tools and hold themselves accountable. These lessons need to be better centralized, better shared across government agencies and across government leaders. And I think that there's a real opportunity to make a statement with by, by setting this cross-enterprise function, whether at the Office of Management and Budget or otherwise. The last thing I'll say on this is that this has got to come from the top. 
I made the president's management agenda is one element that would make clear that customer experience is a priority. But from the next president, from his agency leaders, from the cabinet, and, and by appointing those who are in charge of customer experience, inculcating that culture from the leadership and from the top down will make a huge difference in setting new priorities for the American people. Lauren, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to see you again. Up next, where to start if you're just starting on open season? Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to choose a new plan at the 11th hour and just how much time you have left. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Open season is closing very soon. Federal employees have till Monday, December 14th, to choose a new health care plan. Walt Francis is a consultant, health insurance expert, author of the Checkbook Guide to Health Plans. Walt, I'll forgive you for being biased if you think the Checkbook uh, Guide is the place to start for people who are doing this at the last minute. What should they look at when they're looking at these plans? Is, is, is the most important thing to think about what they need in the coming year? Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, the second most important is your doctor's still in the plan. The only way to be sure is to call your doctor's office. Um, if, you're th if you're willing to think about changing plans, use either the OPM website or the checkbook website uh, to just look for something. There's lots of information presented, overwhelming amounts, but there's going to be some angle that appeals to you. Maybe some particular benefit that you're interested in, maybe... Uh, Oh, I didn't know there were that many plans offered by GIHA or just some 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 clue to look at at least two or three brochures, two or three plans. Maybe you saw a good ad on TV, but don't just look at your own plan. Look at a couple of others to make sure that your plan is still a reasonable buy in comparison. And um, there are choices. For example, very few people know about uh, GIHA Elevate or Blue Cross FEP Blue new recently new plans there's new united plans there's a lot of plans out there that you probably never heard of check out one or two or three of them what should i check out as i'm reading these brochures what are the terms or the buzzwords or whatever that i should understand as i'm trying to make this decision at the last minute well on the last page but one or two of every brochure is a summary of its uh benefits that's well, it's like a one-page summary. So you could just let your eyes roll, scroll down that page and see, oh gosh, it only costs 20 bucks a doctor's visit or whatever it is that catches your eye. Or I can get name brand drugs for you know, only paying 20% of the cost, something like that. So you can glance quickly at benefits in, in lots of plans just by downloading their brochures as, as PDF files and flipping through them a little bit. Um, you can look at the summaries and the side-by-side -side comparison feature, both at the OPM and Checkbook websites. Uh, and the plan websites are, you know, you type in uh, Blue Cross or Aetna or United or Kaiser and, and the words F-E-H, the letters F-E-H-B, and you're gonna, get, you're gonna get some information real fast. What is the risk if I do nothing and just OPM rolls me over into the next plan, the same plan that I had this year, for next year? 
Well, there's no risk of losing health insurance. You automatically stay in the plan you're in. And even if uh, there's a few plans that leave the program every year, but you're automatically rolled over into some other plan, you're not going to be left without insurance. But the big risk is you're going to lose the one or two or $3,000 a year saving that you could find in a plan with lower premiums and equally good or better benefits. Uh, and people leave that money laying on the table. Uh, it's like giving yourself a pay raise, only you forgot to do it. Uh, so you want to give yourself that pay raise before the end of open season by, by finding a, a plan that's better than the one you're in. Health insurance isn't the only thing that people have to make uh, a decision people can make at the last minute. What else is on the table, Walt? Uh, again, the uh, open season deadlines apply to FedVIP plans, which are dental and vision plans. And especially important, almost everybody should set up a flexible spending account for your out-of-pocket costs uh, and get a roughly 25 or 30 percent discount on whatever you spend for health care out-of-pocket. That's just more money that people leave lying on the table because they don't take a few minutes to check out their options during open season. We have about a minute left, Walt. What's, what should I do if I do nothing else as the deadline runs down? Where do I start? Look at the brochure of the plan you're in. Download it, again, from the plan website, the OPM website, the checkbook website. Look at the page that says how the plan changes for next year. <laughs> and just let your eyes glance down that page to make sure there's not some really unpleasant surprise there. Uh, call your doctor's office to check, is my physician in the plan next year? That's the key question, next year. You really want to be using preferred provider providers who are in the plan networks. Um, and thirdly, is my health changing? And is there some benefit that I really need to have a good deal on because you want to check your plan brochure and a few others to make sure you're well covered for whatever that expense is next year. Walt Francis, thanks very much. Happy open season. Thank you. You too. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.